an adventure 65 million years in the making. Or I guess more of a podcast 27 years in the making. Welcome to Rad Chat. Today, I will be talking with a fellow Jurassic Park fan and good friend, Fivel Fox. She can be found on Twitter under the handle Fivel Fox. One of my passions is sharing other people's passions. Nothing makes me happier than when people nerd out, as it were, and passionately enthuse about their favorite things. You know, when they let their guard down and just share what they love. There's just so much negativity in fandoms and people ranting about things they hate that I want to see what people love about their fandom and their favorite things in general. Now keep in mind, neither of us are experts and we just enjoy the films as they are. You won't get specific details on the cameras used or some aspect ratios or the this director's inspiration found on some special edition commentary track. These are just two friends talking about something that both brings them joy. I had an incredible time doing this. and this format, it seems to be a lot more fun and a lot more natural for me. I got a couple more scheduled, but I want to hear from you. I don't need experts. You don't even need to know obscure trivia or more than anyone else. If you love something, I want to know about it and talk with you. Go ahead and shoot me a message on Twitter. I'm at JP Vries, and we can see if we can chat about something you find super rad. As usual, I like to celebrate a creator or con contributor to the community. Before we begin, and this week it is author Christian Bland. Christian has written several books, and each one's wildly different from the rest. My personal favorite is A Lifetime of Questionable Decisions. It's a humorous and very heartfelt book of essays based on his personal life experiences. I actually found myself in a lot of these stories he shared, both as a parent and remembering very similar experiences throughout my childhood. For better or worse. He also has a few other books, such as Naked Shingles, and it's very different in tone, but it's incredibly raw and incredibly real. So if you're looking for stories of how video and computer games help shape someone's life, anecdotes of growing up in fatherhood, or experiences that will actually bring your tears, check him out. He's very earnest and extremely intelligent and very charismatic in his writings. All of his books are found on Amazon and very reasonably priced, so go give him money and support independent artists and creators. His Twitter handle is Uncle Jeet, that's U-N-C-L-E-J-E-E-T, and he has additional pieces on his site at C-O-Q-D-I-D-D-L-E-S.com. Finally, as always, thanks for listening. This podcast can now be found on most services people use, such as like Anchor, Spotify, and finally iTunes. Seeing my podcast pop on iTunes has been like really awesome and it feels more real, which is strange. So please let people know if you dig this because I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Your feedback just makes me want to do more. I can be found myself on Twitter at JPVries, V-R-I-E-S-S, -S, or at RadChatPod. This is part one of a two-part discussion. This was supposed to be only like a half an hour conversation, but we just had such a good time. We kept going and ranting and laughing about things. So please enjoy part one of our two-part Jurassic Park chat. So I'm here with Fivel, and we're going to talk about Jurassic Park memories, some of our favorite things that we love about the Jurassic Park franchise. Um, neither of us are experts, and we're just big fans of the series. So are there any memories that you seem to really stand out for you? Well, for me, the first time I saw Jurassic Park was on television, and my dad had recorded it. So it came on television, and then I didn't get to see that tape until after he previewed it and decided, okay, this is okay for my kids to watch. And that didn't show up on television until, uh, I guess, May 7th in 1995. Wow. Like two years after it was released in theaters. So by the time it was on TV, kind of the, I guess, the big wave had passed. And people were over it and on to other movies. So when I experienced it, it was like an epiphany. But people, weren't, uh, people around me weren't also going through the same <laughs> epiphany. <laughs> And it kind of made me stand out because things got really weird. I got obsessive, and it's all I talked about at school when everyone else had seen it two years earlier. 
can't imagine my first viewing of it being on TV, but I know it was a big deal when it did finally hit TV because it was such a huge film. Everyone at school loved it when it came out. It was all we ever talked about. We used to play it on the playground and everything. Oh, see, I'm so jealous of that. I remember hearing about it and it's like, it's a dinosaur movie. It's fun. Like, that sounds right up my alley. You know, but we didn't have a lot of money growing up, so that just wasn't available to me yet. So, but when it did come on TV and I had free access to it, I, I just couldn't stop watching it. In fact, my mom spent a lot of time, like, finding out how she could cheaply get me, like, the toys and the books. <laughs> and for a book report, I did the uh, novelization of Jurassic Park. Sure. And when I, so I read the book, and then the part of the requirement was to, okay, you need a project. So it has to be either a diorama a play or like a craft and what i did was i set up a play i recreated the scene where the t-rex crashes into the car with the kids right so i took i borrowed a barbie car from my cousin and two of her barbies (laughs) (laughs) i had i made a felt t-rex puppet and i got two balloons so here i was under a table in front of all my classmates like setting the scene and then making my own sound effects and everything and like driving my hand puppet into this car and just crunching it over and over. Oh my god. That <laughs> like is pretend, awesome. Pretending to make the Barbie scream like ah and then I would pop two balloons at, <laughs> at some point in it and I thought like what was it? I was in fourth grade. So I thought I was brilliant and then it was amazing and you know very intricate and I didn't realize that all my classmates were like looking at me horrified. <laughs> This girl's a lunatic. This is why she has no friends. <laughs> oh my god, I would have just loved that. That's the kind of thing I would do for uh, class projects all the time. We had to do a project uh, about fifth or sixth grade that was about technology and communication. And this is before email or anything was being used, really. And I instead decided to make a half an hour audio cassette with the Jurassic Park theme as the opening. And then I did a radio show where I interviewed myself by dubbing the cassettes back and forth. And I got in arguments with myself and then played uh, like eight different songs from this Dr. Demento tape that I stole from my half brother, including like the Trashman Surfing Bird, which everyone knows from Family Guy. Yeah, I I nerded it up and (laughs) I expected applause, but instead I just got looks, very, very dirty looks from everybody else. See, we would have been best friends when I was uh, 15. During the summer, I got this little radio set up where you could do your own radio station. And and, uh, I would play tapes and I would do full-on summer radio shows, like pretending I was some wonderful, you know, super cool radio DJ. Because back when I was younger, radio DJs were cool guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh. Even it's now, awesome. I'm wearing this mic, and and there's a part of me that will never get over like how cool I feel just wearing the mic. I'm like I'm not, even when I'm not talking to you, I'm just wearing it around the house, pretending like I'm a pilot or I'm a DJ or just something, you know, more than what I am. <laughs> so the first time I was saying uh, that I got to see uh, Jurassic Park is actually my dad took me. Um, my dad, I was about, I think I was 11 at the time, and my dad took me to see it and. We also didn't have a lot of money. We we struggled a lot, but we made this happen. It was like right after my birthday, I think. And the movie just, I don't know. I became obsessed with the film, mainly because of the Dilophosaurus. 
it looked like a gremlin to me. It was small and green and cute. And I refused to believe that it was uh, it was bad or evil or mean. So I was insisting that it was like defending the park to everybody. I would go around telling everybody this. It was kind of uh, unsettling now they look back at it. But was there any uh, dinosaur that stood out for you? I always loved the Triceratops because when I was learning about it as a young kid, I remember very distinctly seeing a picture of it in a book. And like it was this formative moment where I decided... Like, I knew I liked dinosaurs, but then I saw that page with the Triceratops, had a picture of it, and it had, you know, for scale, it had a picture of a bus next to the Triceratops. And then in the briefing, it talked about how, like, it's actually a very, like, more one of the gentle creatures, but it can defend itself against the T-Rex. So it's tough, but nurturing. And I sure. just felt like, okay, that's my kindred spirit dinosaur. So when I saw that scene for the first time with Sam Neill... In Jurassic Park, I cried. I just bawled. <laughs> that and scene I also felt still like, brings tears to my eyes. And I still, I remember feeling like in that moment, like I was already crushing on Sam Neill because of that movie. But then like that scene happened and I saw that his dinosaur was Triceratops. I was like, Sam Neill must be my dad. <laughs> and I like had this fantasy for a while that somehow he was my dad. That, that would be a nice thing. I like him. He's very, very, very classy. Oh, yes. The reason I was so, I love that scene so much, and it kind of uh, brought back tears to my eyes when I was thinking about that, because uh, at in the Milwaukee Public Museum, where I used to go all the time, there's this gigantic display of, like, one-to-one scale dinosaurs, and it's a T-Rex killing a, a Triceratops. And it's, like, super dramatic lighting and thunder and lightning that would happen randomly. And it would always remind me right. of the dead Triceratops whenever I would watch Jurassic Park. We have, I wonder what that one looked like, because we have something similar at the St. Louis Science Center. There's this, you go downstairs, and it showcases this big animatronic T-Rex. And the the Triceratops is just like in the movie, it's laying on its side, but this one, the T-Rex is just eating it. <laughs> I wonder if it's, it's the just, same one, because that sounds identical. Right, and it's just on loop. It just go, It's roaring and going down and eating it and coming back up. Wow. And this is appropriate for children, and they're worried about Jurassic Park. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then you have things like RoboCop cartoons. So, like, th- the 80s and early 90s were so different. I'm surprised they never did a Jurassic Park cartoon because it seems perfect for the property. Oh, absolutely. And that merchandise would have went nuts. And speaking of merchandise, the, did you ever collect the toys? I got what I could. Uh, my mom mostly got me the books. I wasn't really, I mean, we would get figures here and there if, like, we saw them at, like, Salvation Army or Goodwill or thrift sure. stores. But I know that for my birthday, she tracked down, they had this Jurassic Park encyclopedia set, and each dinosaur had its own book. And each book was only like 30 pages, but they were hardcover, and I just loved them so dearly. And I was heartbroken to find out, maybe just like two years later, that most of that information was not accurate, but it didn't diminish how much I loved that gift and the idea that my mom wanted to like immerse me in that world. It was special because I had them, but it was like, they're not Jurassic park. They're just pretend dinosaurs, not the real ones. Right. So what do you think would be different if they made Jurassic park now with what we know now? I think we would see a lot more of like the science would be more accurate. Sure. I mean, I know even now movies give, you know, 
that leeway, but because with things like Twitter and social media, people are always going to be ready to call out anything and be critical, and we have more access to people like, you know, Neely Tyson, who's going to tell you everything that's wrong with the movie. So <laughs> I think they're going to work on Oh, yeah. It. Okay. The, the dinosaurs would probably look like this. And, like, the raptor, we're not going to actually call it a raptor. We're going to call it what it is. And things like that. And I think it was an adaptator rap. I can't remember. I'll have to look that up. But I know for the longest time, the rumor about, you know, okay, the, all the nerds would be like, that's not really a raptor, that's a Utah raptor. And then you find out it's not a Utah raptor either. Michael Crichton was super into the scientific uh, side of everything he did in uh, like the Andromeda Strain and Sphere and everything. I, uh, my first introduction to well, Jurassic Park I, was technically that book, but I was too young to really understand it, but I tried so hard to read it. And then I remember getting confused by all like the binary code that's in the yes, book. That, I had right. no idea what I was looking at. <laughs> I just remember thinking, wow, this must be really important. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. If he's, like, he could have wrote, put in anything and I would have believed like it was the Bible. <laughs> when I was reading it, when I was a kid, I, I felt smarter than everybody else because I read it. And I'd be like, well, you know, Robert Muldoon runs around with a rocket launcher. I loved how extreme right. the book went. And there was a lot more of the take on the family, which I thought was interesting about how raptors in this, in the book were not, they actually kind of go into, they're not really dinosaurs. They're more creatures, they're creations, which Jurassic world touched on. Okay. So I looked it up and I think what they've established now is that the raptor that we see in the movie is actually an achillobator. Okay. So it went from Velociraptor to Utah Raptor to Achillobator. I'm sure that will change again in the next six months at this point. Yes, as, as we keep getting more and more information about these dinosaurs. So did you say you read the book yeah. before you saw it? I I want to say, see, I know I, I tried over and over, and I, I, I couldn't tell you that I finished it from front to end, but I know sure. I tried my best to get through it. And I would have only been like eight or nine when I got it. I remember it was an old paperback that was at a thrift store. Okay. The other book, though, that came after Michael Crichton did was Raptor Red. I loved that one. That was much more accessible and told in the point of view of the, the dinosaur. I just thought that was fantastic. I wanted more of those. So it's told in the point of view of the female, uh, of a female raptor and her pack. And I don't, yeah, it's not, it's supposed to be in period, but it's, he humanizes her. It's really interesting. Oh, I see. It's uh, by then, Backer. Huh. Oh, okay. Right. So I remember somehow I got from that book to Raptor Red. And then Raptor Red, after reading Raptor Red, I rewatched Jurassic Park in a whole new light. Because it wasn't the human story anymore. It was this idea of these very emotionally distraught dinosaurs just trying so to navigate what's going on. I always did feel that they were kind of treated unfairly because they were kept in these cages. And I think uh, Sam Neill says it perfectly. He says, you know, T-Rex doesn't want to be fed. T-Rex wants to hunt. And then you come back to that scene where they're just lowering the cow into the raptor pen. And I remember even as a kid, I was like, so they keep the raptors in there, but you can't see them. You just stand there. Like, what's the point of this? Yeah, that always confused me. I guess it was dramatic, but I'm like, there's so much foliage, you can't, there's no way to see anything. Meanwhile, the, you know, the, I guess they called them brachiosaurs at the time, are wandering free to stomp on anyone that comes near. 
That's right. They wouldn't have like thought that, oh, I better not walk here. <laughs> That's just, can you imagine the insurance you have to sign to go to that island? <laughs> That's why they'll have a coupon day or something. Yes, we'll have a coupon day. <laughs> and John Hammond's like, this is for the kids. It has to be for everybody. You know, that, Equal that's, opportunity eating. <laughs> that was another really interesting thing is how they changed uh, John Hammond. And I really think that Sir, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough was the reason for it. But they changed him more into a Jim Henson or a, a Walt Disney type character than the capitalist evil character he was in the in the book. I, I remember I do remember that. And I, I think that was a very smart change because if we didn't feel empathetic toward that character, we wouldn't. There's so many scenes in that movie that focus on his dream dying, that he right. did have this good intent. And he wanted to bring magic. And I love that comparison to Walt Disney, because they even bring it up in the movie, too, where they're like, you know, Walt Disney failed that first day when everything turned out all right. But <laughs> they're telling him, like, the animatronics didn't eat the people. <laughs> I think that was my generation's and yours, of course, uh, the first exposure to Jeff Goldblum in that in that moment where he's really just starting to go on this this tirade of science and why we're just destroying everything, which is even more appropriate right now. So. That was my first exposure to like Jeff Goldblum, the actor. Like he, because even though those, those are movies existed, and I had probably watched them with my dad because I watched a lot of movies with my dad. He never really registered until Jurassic Park, where he became his this icon. Exactly. And he'll for yeah he'll forever be Malcolm to me. Like, I can go back and watch The Fly and all these other amazing movies he's done, these iconic roles, and I still just see Malcolm being The Fly. <laughs> That's the same thing with me. I, I, I saw the, thaw, the, the, thigh, the Fly when I was really far too young to be watching Cronenberg, and I loved, you know, it was so goopy and horrible and, and scary. I loved it. I loved every minute of that film. And I never made the connection until I was probably like, you know, 15, 16 years old that Brundle is uh, Jeff Goldblum. I had it just never made that sense to me. Uh, I do love, too, that Goldblum is just like this walking, snarky scientist in all black leather. Like he's the renegade of academia. And like it's it's presented really cool in the movie. Like you can get behind it. But then being in academia now. I see those people and it's it's laughable to be like the rebel. Like, okay, what sets me apart is I'm going to wear a leather jacket. <laughs> are there are there a lot of people have that have taken like that. the the Jeff Goldblum way of life in academia now? Yes. Well, because now you have these younger people who are going, you know, the, uh, I guess, your colleagues. You've always had young people, but now it seems to be more acceptable to say like, all right, I'm an academic, and then like, okay, sure. but I'm going to be progressive, and we're going to get out of the ivory tower, and we're not going to wear suits, and we're going to bond with our students. And sometimes it just goes too far the other way, like how like you have to balance as a parent being a friend and a parent. Well, you see that in academia too, where you get like, okay, at what point are you more of a teacher or a friend now? <laughs> And I'm not knocking that because, like, with my professors who are my mentors, we go to breweries all the time. We do work there. And they've become more like stepfathers to me than teachers. At the same time, like, they don't, they make sure we know where the line is. Sure. And I think you don't see that. That can be a problem. I couldn't be in a room with Ian Malcolm without having to walk out in anger. 
just he seems like the kind of guy that came off as purposely antagonistic exactly he like uh, completely contrarian like he's you're, you're in it's off the coast of costa rica and he's wearing all black and all leather <laughs> can you imagine how he smelled <laughs> oh god and, plus the hair gel I, I, that he clearly had <laughs> that just must have been roasting on his head <laughs> i had never thought about that that he is basically cooking he chose clothes to cook in while he goes to costa rica <laughs> I think they spent so much energy on translating these other academic scientists into like cool, casual people. And then Hammond, too, he needed to be this dream maker. So we had to have some kind of evil, like, who's the evil villain? Because it's not necessarily the dinosaurs, because there are plenty of scenes that want us to empathize with the dinosaurs. So I guess the villain is the lawyer, the scientists, sadly, even though they're just doing what they're told. Nedry, clearly. But even yeah. he, he's like this just angry worker. And I think he was supposed to hint at the subplot that really did get touched upon too much is that Hammond was constantly saying, you know, spare no expense, but he cut corners everywhere. Muldoon constantly complained about that. You know, I keep telling you, we need locking mechanisms on the doors, which just seems like a travesty waiting to happen. Nedry really made me feel that like there's something else. There's another subtext to this film where there's underpaid, overworked people. Like the only programmer they have is, is, uh, Samuel Jackson in the amazing role of Ray Arnold. Right. They expect him to fix everything somehow. Oh, definitely. So you had a park that size, and then they minimize for a storm, and you, it's run by two computer guys? Are you serious? There's no way. One game warden who doesn't have a team or anything. It implies there's a lot of ancillary characters who have left the island because of the storm. They haven't actually opened yet, so we're not seeing them. But you're right. I agree with the whole idea that I like, okay, say there's that other subtext of they're understaffed. And then it, I can see it again in the parallel to Disney World. For, because for all that magic, there are constantly stories of, you know, mismanagement of labor, labor, extorting interns. Yeah, it peel back the layers and you start to see that just like the dinosaurs themselves, they didn't, they, they didn't uh, do the proper science. As, you know, he says, you stood in the souls of geniuses and... I love that the continuations have actually touched upon that, where they're no longer called dinosaurs. They're monsters. They're creations. And B.D. Yes. Wong returning makes me beyond thrilled. Yes, I love that they can tie it together that way. See, th to me, B.D. Wong was kind of the only connection back to the original. I know that they, always, they call back to it and they talk about it, but sure. it just had such a different feeling that those new ones, I liked them, but they didn't give me that magic feeling that Jurassic Park did, or even Jurassic Park 3. That seems like a good point to take a break. We'll be back in a week or so with the next part of the chat once I get everything edited up and taken care of. As usual, never be ashamed of the things you love. Thanks. <laughs>